My goodness, great to see you this morning. Glad that you made it to the 8 a.m. Nice. I'm not calling you out, Moses, but you're really friendly in the front row there, bud. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, you guys, I have some exciting news that you may or may not know. We have AC again in this place. <laughs> Woo! In the hottest summer on record, we have not had AC in this building, but this Friday, um, we got some additional power hooked up to the church, which is what we needed to fire up our AC units, and now we are going to have cool air blessing you on Sunday mornings uh, for like the last couple weeks that it's hot, and then we're going to be turning on the heat. But um, all that to say, um, it's been a long time coming. Um, thanks for your patience on that. Um, a couple things I just want to let you know about. Um, coming up here in just a couple of weeks, we're having our Alpha launch party. And if you've been around Riverbend, you know that Alpha is so close to our heart because this is just an effective way that we've found to introduce people to Jesus over 10 weeks of dinner conversations. And so, as you know, many of your friends or coworkers or neighbors who don't follow Jesus would never agree to come here with you on a Sunday. Um, and we kind of get it. We're singing songs up here. We're praying to Jesus. I'm teaching from the scriptures and all of that. It can be intimidating for somebody who might have questions about faith but may not feel comfortable in a church setting. And so we do this thing called Alpha where we like try and break down some of those walls. We don't meet here. We meet at a coffee shop and all of that. And it's just a really fun and engaging way for you to just have conversations with your friends, neighbors, coworkers who don't follow after Jesus. So we're having a launch party to kind of kick it all off this fall. It's going to be September 7th, 6.30 at Immersion Brewing. We're actually buying drink tickets for people who are over 21. Uh, we have live music. And the, and, and the point behind all of this is that we want you to have confidence that you can bring a friend to this thing who doesn't follow Jesus and not lose that friend. So we have a good friend of ours whose name is Josh, um, Josh White from the Portland area. He's going to be here doing some live music for that. Um, and we're going to have um, some like free food and drinks for your friends. Immersion Brewing, September 7th, 6.30. Um, Lauren's going to remind you about it at the end of the gathering. And on your way out, you can grab some invitations. We're also just encouraging you to be praying for your non-believing friends. Because that really matters too. So we've challenged the church to a 21-day uh, prayer for the lost and, and, and all of that. So um, you can grab little cards on your way out so that you can like write down three people's names and be reminded to pray for them every single day. Okay, so with that, you guys, we are going to have a teaching from the scriptures. Why don't you stand with me um, because we're going to read together. All right, so um, if you're new um, or if you've maybe been kind of in and out because of the summer and all of that, we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just reminded that when Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it was customary for first century uh, rabbis to actually sit down while they taught and everybody else stood. Um, and so this is kind of reminiscent of that. We stand for the reading of Jesus' words. Okay, so um, let's read this out loud together. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say uh, yes to your word. We want to follow you and follow your word. And so we just ask that this time would be one of those special moments of our week where we genuinely connect with you and we feel you, but we more than just feel your presence, but we actually hear your voice speaking to us and guiding us into a fuller, deeper, richer life with you. And so God, um, we just ask that you would be um, speaking mightily through this passage. I pray that you would use my, my words and my efforts here as one of the pastors at Riverbend but really, ultimately, it's you that we're interested in hearing from. So give us your grace this morning. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Okay, go ahead and grab your seats. Um, so a couple years ago, um, when we first started the church, um, remember, Grace, I was driving this 1991 Jeep Cherokee? It was like a two-tone Jeep Cherokee. I loved it, actually. It was uh, like black and white, and it was kind of rusted out. And every now and again, it would have a hard time starting. Jerry, you work on Jeeps, don't you? Uh, no, I actually have one. Oh, you have one. You have one. That's awesome. So Jerry has one. You still drive it. That's amazing. So I had this 91 Jeep. It was running pretty good. But one of the issues that I had with it is like one of the welds popped on it or something like that in the driver's side seat. And so the seat was like literally folded back. So every time I was driving anywhere, I was like buckled up and everything, but I was like flexing my abs and I was like <laughs> sitting up and driving myself. It was, it was crazy. So anyways, I have, we have some good friends here, a part of the community here at the time, and they've since moved, but, um, but they saw me every now and again driving around town. Ben's a small town. They saw me driving around this rusted out Jeep. And uh, one Sunday after a gathering, they, they said, hey, we want to take you and Grace out for lunch. And we said, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And we sit down to lunch, and they say, we're so sick of seeing you drive around in that piece of crap. <laughs> and I was like, hey, but no car payment, because that's been our thing. We never want to have car payments as much as we can uh, manage it. And so, um, so anyways, we just had this conversation. They're like, we'd really like to see you in a nicer car. And we're like, wow, that's cool. And then... <laughs> They, they, they took the keys to their 2018 Toyota 4Runner, limited edition, like leather seats, heated seats, cooled seats, and they slide it across the table, and, we sit, and they said, we want you to take our spare. Like, this is yours. And we were like, oh my gosh, we like have no idea how to even like respond to that. Like I think we were maybe like for like five minutes, we didn't have anything to say. And I think the first thing out of our mouths was like, no, 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 we can't possibly take such an extravagant gift because that's a super extravagant gift. And they insisted again and again and again. They said, no, seriously, can you please like like get rid of your Jeep and take our car. <laughs> like, we've we've got a we've got a we've got a spare, and so they finally sort of convinced us, and we said, well, gosh, like in like tears in our eyes, just like wow, thank you so much for your generosity. I said, absolutely no problem, and seriously, this is there's no strings attached. There's only one thing that we would ask, and we would ask that you would just not tell people that it was us who gave it to you. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, like, of course, yeah, absolutely. So I know who they are, but you guys don't know who they are. And um, what I love about them is they're like this really extremely generous, amazing, wise family. And we love them for the record, not for what they give to us, but who they are. But what they gave to us was amazing, just incredible, um, pretty next level. And so that family and a few other families here in the room that, that I'm aware of really are prime examples of what Jesus is teaching us today from the scriptures. He's teaching us about the reward of what we're going to call quiet generosity. And he's warning us about the temptation of doing righteous stuff for recognition and status. In fact, that's actually um, the, the point of the next couple of passages here in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is why I love the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. And kudos to you for coming back and keep coming back. Because week after week, it's taboo subject after taboo subject. Infidelity, murder. Don't worry today, we're just talking about your money. I'm sure I won't get into any trouble today. Uh, that was my lame attempt at sarcasm. You guys will be the judge of that. Um, but notice what Jesus says. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. See, our friends, they understood what this was all about. So if you're new to the sermon, um, as some of us are, Jesus is talking about um, and has been talking about what real righteousness actually looks like in the kingdom of God. Or if you prefer, he's talking about what it means to have kingdom ethics. So forgive me for sounding like just a broken record here, like week after week, but Jesus just keeps hammering this point home. Real righteousness is not just about outward behavior. Just keep the rules, check the list, and you'll be okay. Real righteousness is about an inner holistic, from the heart, obedience to the Father. And that's what Jesus is after. In fact, in chapter 5, Jesus gives us six interpretations or reinterpretations, if you will, of the Torah and six transforming kingdom virtues that sort of flow out of that. That's what we've been talking about these last six weeks. Um, things like faithfulness to covenant and not adultery and reconciliation instead of hate. Like These are the things that Jesus has been sort of cluing us into in chapter 5. But now as we start chapter 6, in these first 18 verses, Jesus gives us three positive examples of living your kingdom ethics in your giving, which we're talking about today, in your praying, and in your fasting. So today we're just going to be talking about that first positive example of your giving. And as I read this, I just get the sense that Jesus wants to just focus on the good stuff, the kingdom ethics, and that's it. But he can't because he's living in this time and place. He has to sort of critique the religious milieu of his cultural moment. And what I mean by that is first century Judaism was the air that his audience breathed. So part of Jesus' role as the prophet and as the rabbi or the teacher of the day was to, in love, critique the religious elitism, the self-righteousness, and hypocrisy of their religious culture. So he's saying, don't just go along with the current. Don't just go along with the stream of righteousness that you grew up with. There's actually way more to your kingdom ethics than merely outward behavior. So uh, 
before you just sort of write everything I just said off as like one of, one, one of my ramblings, which maybe it was, but really I honestly believe that this is kind of like the, the heart or the center of what Jesus is trying to teach us. Let me just say this. I think that Jesus would probably need to do the same thing if he were a guest teacher at Riverbend this morning to sort of critique where we've lost the plot or missed the point. And I believe that the whole relationship between the Messiah and the Pharisees from the Gospels, it's like a cautionary tale where, um, where Jesus is wanting to, to, to instruct us on what it means to live an actually holy life. There are gaps in our theology and in our religious practice too, myself included. And um, it's important that we analyze those gaps in our theology and our discipleship, not to the point where we're like deconstructing everything and redefining orthodoxy. Unfortunately, that's a thing in our culture too. But it's important because the gut check of this message is that we can be saying the right things and maybe even tragically doing the right things, but to do it from the wrong motive or to have the wrong heart. And Jesus just puts his thumb right there on that point, and he wants to keep hitting it home. And he's sort of gently pointing this out to us. He's saying, this is my sort of paraphrase of verse 1. He's saying, don't try to look good so other people will notice you. Which, first, hold on a second. Like, isn't that all of life? Isn't all of life trying to get people to notice you? I mean, let's be honest. There are some of us who spent like more than a half an hour in front of the mirror this morning specifically so that they would notice you. And by the way, I'm not any better. Like I stayed up till past midnight last night and every Saturday night because I'm like kind of getting ready for this morning. And what I like to tell myself is that I just want to like teach the word with accuracy and clarity and reverence to God. But at least half of it is me just wanting to sound cool and sound smart in front of you guys. And, and that's probably being kind of generous to myself. My daughter Isabel's laughing at me because she went to bed last night and I was like furiously working on these notes. So, so what is that, what is that all, all, all about? I mean, I think defining ourselves based on what other people think is a lifelong thing that we have to deal with. But Jesus is talking about something a little bit more specific. He's saying, don't make religious behavior, giving, praying, and fasting, about gaining status. Don't make your religious behavior about gaining status. And that's a thing today too. And where does that temptation come from? You know what I mean? That temptation to sort of gain status through religious practice. Um, I think we'd like to think, or we tend to think that religious posturing is only affecting people who like really drink the Kool-Aid of some like fanatical leader or something like that, and they're way off in some echo chamber somewhere with a bunch of other weird people, and it doesn't really affect us. But the reality is, it's not that simple. The reality is that it's not that overt. It's far more systemic. And here's what I mean by that. When you say yes to Jesus, or when you say yes to Christianity, or really any other faith system for that matter, it means that we're also saying yes to a set of beliefs, a set of doctrines, a set of practices, and we're saying yes to a community. So whether we accept it or not, being a Jesus follower means we're a part of a new society. And any society is made up of people. And a, a, a society has a culture. A society has a hierarchy. A society has some good things about it, but a society is also has some dysfunction. 
Now, ideally, in the church, and hopefully this would be true of Riverbend, like we have the culture of the kingdom of God. But in reality, or in actual practice, culture, community, church is messy. And in fact, the Sermon on the Mount, in, in, through Jesus' eyes, really accounts for the messiness of real life, which is why we're descending into the weeds here. So Andre Kojak writes this. He says, generally accepted religious practices, like giving, praying, and fasting, they serve a double function connecting people with God, and also establishing a social norm. Because such practices establish a social norm, one's honor and reputation in society become intimately connected with such religious activities. This is a recipe for disaster. As this makes it easy for pious practices to get directed not toward God, but toward establishing one's safety and security in society. Are you guys following? Like, this is super important. In other words, he's saying, when the things that connect you with God also happen to be the things that earn you status in the community, it's easy for your motives to get twisted. Does that make sense? So let me just give you one example. Uh, most Sundays, I or someone else on our staff team will invite you to join us for Tuesday morning prayer, 8 to 9 a.m., and we honestly believe that this is the seed or the beginning of a vision that God has given us for a community-wide house of prayer where people from Riverbend and from other churches in town can gather morning, noon, and night all throughout the week, drop in for an hour here at the chapel to pray, to pray, to seek God's face, and of course to contend for a revival to the gospel in our city. And we believe that this is like the first and, and foremost thing that the church of the future needs to be about, especially post-COVID, we want to be the kinds of people who seek the presence of God as a matter of first importance. And I believe that this might be the best way or one of the best ways that you could spend your Tuesday morning is with us and in, pray, and in prayer and all of that. So that's why we keep inviting you to do it. So the opportunity for Tuesday morning prayer is yours. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can approach that or a couple of different ways that you could show up. Option one is you could show up with the motive of connecting with God and with us. And that's what we hope you show up with that motive, and, um, and that would be good. Option two is you could show up with the motive of posturing yourself in the community. Like if I keep showing up, they're going to just think I'm so devout and so amazing, and I'm such a mature Jesus follower. I'm going to be like featured on Instagram or whatever. Like I, I know you guys are like, Really, you just really want to impress me. I get it. I get it. You guys laughed a little too hard at that, actually. That, made, that offended me a little bit. Whatever the case, it's the same result. We're all just here Tuesday morning praying for the kingdom to come. Or option three, and this is probably much more likely, you could subconsciously be motivated by a little bit of both. I want to connect with God, but I, other, I have some other motives that are mixed in with that desire to connect with God as well. So that scenario will probably have some un unintended consequence in the church. Only God knows to what extent. But if that whole like cocktail or recipe of motivations influences all of your habits, all of your practices, all of your lifestyle, and all of mine, and all of everyone else's, it weaponizes our, quote, holiness. And it, we're just sort of competing against each other for brownie points and climbing some pseudo-religious ladder. And it's not at all what God has in mind. We're sort of battling for status. 
So every time I feel the need to hide or to pretend in front of other believers, I suspect that this is at least part of the problem. And we experience a lot of that too. I, I used to joke, not as much anymore, but I used to joke that, you know, when the pastor comes over, you kind of hide the beer behind the milk in your fridge. You know, it's like that, that tendency that, that we, we want to try and make ourselves look good so that others will notice us. And so we have to be present to that. I think that's the first thing that God wants us to notice is just that we would be present to these suspect motives. So here's the example or the solution. Actually, it's both here in verse two through the end of our passage today. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, I wish that there was actually a lot more time to talk about this. I say that every week, but the reality is that there's a lot of technical things about generosity and giving that we simply don't have time for because we're making the larger point that Jesus is making. But I want you to notice that word, when. That word, when, it appears several times um, in the next couple of examples that we're going to be looking at in these next few weeks, like on prayer and on fasting. But notice it doesn't say if you give to the needy. It says when you give to the needy. Because caring for the poor is a fundamental part and an essential part of our discipleship to Jesus. Without question, this is like non-optional for the Jesus follower, not in a heavy-handed or shame-filled or guilt-filled way, but just in the sense that this is the invitation, is to be radically generous the way that Jesus is generous with us. So our, our disordered motives are not an excuse or a reason for us not to give to the poor. They are instead like a gracious signal. A lot of times conviction is actually just God's grace. It's a gracious signal that we need to notice our motives and deal with our motives so that we can care for the poor in a way that God can bless and reward. And so um, that's the solution he's working toward here in verse 3. But we're going to get to that in a second. But first, notice how Jesus views or defines hypocrisy. When we talk about hypocrisy, we usually define it a little bit differently than Jesus talks about it here. So here he views hypocrisy not as a person who's faking religion, but who's actually living a secret life of immorality. He's actually referring to an, a religious person who's actually getting it right in terms of his outward behavior, but he's doing it with the wrong motives and the wrong heart. That's critically important. Again, it's status, it's reputation, it's not a heart of submission and obedience to Jesus. Um, another quick story. Um, in the early days of Riverbend, we were, when we were just getting the church started, there was this guy um, who sort of mistook me as somebody who was important, um, and he took me out to dinner and um, I thought he just wanted to talk life or whatever, and he kind of did, but from minute one, it was obvious that he was just there to impress me. He wanted me to be impressed by the friends that he had, and to his credit, he, he knew some really important people, like senators and like high-profile Christians and all of that, and he wanted me to be impressed by his money, and he was offering a lot of it to the church, and it was clear that he was like trying to influence me, and I'm not that smart to figure this stuff out, and he was like even less subtle, so it was just like a bad match from the get-go. 
Um, but one of the things that he said to me after dinner was like, well, you know, so how can I get connected here? And he, again, he, I felt like I had a bad, just had a bad feeling about this guy. I felt like he was just trying to posture himself in the community, gain influence and all of that. And so I did what my mentor, Phil Comer, Pastor Phil, told me to do, which I absolutely love. He said, when you have somebody like that where you're not sure what their motives are, just ask them to set up chairs with you Sunday morning. And so that's what I did. I, he's like, how do I get connected? You know, he's looking for something. I go, uh, Sunday at 7 a.m., I need help setting up chairs. And he smiled at me really nicely, and I had never heard from him ever again. <laughs> um, and so the wisdom of, of, of Phil's, like, leadership and pastoral, like, like, intuition there is that anyone who understands leadership in the kingdom of God will be a servant. They're going to understand that real righteousness isn't actually seeking attention. And so um, this is what Jesus is like. Jesus is the humble servant. So, so those who are qualified as leaders in the church show themselves to be servants and happy to take on those kind of like unsexy roles, if you will. So hypocrisy, according to Jesus, again, isn't acting one way and hiding a life of sin. That's just like what we would call lying or living a double life. Hypocrisy is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. So now we've talked a little bit about those suspect motives. Now let's talk about the action itself, the, the positive example, which is giving to the poor. Now, again, uh, we don't have time for the technical explanation, but there are many different types of giving or generosity in the Bible. Many different types. There's tithes, there's offerings, and then there's what Jesus is talking about here, which is called almsgiving, which is something you're probably familiar with. Almsgiving refers to generous giving that directly helps the poor and the needy. It's not being routed through another organization. It's just giving money, giving sustenance to the poor and to the needy. So tithes go to support the synagogue or the temple, support the, like the ongoing operations of the church or the, 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 the temple. And offerings were a part of like religious holidays, right? But alms in the first century were a part of ordinary life where you saw a poor or disabled or widowed person in town, on the road, on the street, or whatever, and you would glorify God by sharing what you had with them. Plain and simple. That's what alms is. So if you were a practicing Jewish person, you would do all three of those. You would do tithes, you would do offerings, and you would do alms. And alms was just a regular part of, of your ordinary life. The origin of almsgiving that we know of is in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, where it says this, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. He's saying, take responsibility for the hurting, the broken, the needy in your area, in your geographical area. So in addition to it being an act of worship to God, alms were actually like the social services of the ancient Hebrew world, right? So in a subsistence culture and in a patriarchal culture, this is the government services. This was the welfare of their days. So there wasn't like another solution for that. This was God's solution for taking care of the needy in the community. So especially in that kind of a system, like if you were poor, then your needs would need to be met by your neighbors. Because if you had a disability, you couldn't work in the fields and you couldn't like 
build websites or code apps or anything like that either, right? So if you're disabled, you couldn't physically work. Or if you were a widow in a, patri in a patriarchal culture, you couldn't own land and farm that land. And so you were exposed. You were exposed to um, having all of this need. So the scriptures commanded that any of us who could work, who were capable of working, and it would be our responsibility to share some of the proceeds or some of the profits of what we earned through work on a regular basis to meet the needs of the people around us. Quite frankly, this is how a lot of Christian societies before us functioned. Before the sort of modern way that social services are set up, this is how Christian societies took care of things. Um, going all the way back to the second century when the church was just a, like a, a, like a very, very small minority, the, 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 like two or three percent of the population, the church would actually take over where the Roman government, the Roman Empire left off. And it's still such an important part of what it means to be a faithful Jesus person is to take care of the poor and needy. Um, uh, but in, in America, like since about like the time of FDR, the church has largely delegated our responsibility to care for the poor to the government. We've like willingly shifted that off of our lap and we've put it onto the government to solve that problem. And it's a mess, right? There's all kinds of things that we could say about that. As you know, this is a really complex problem, especially with the population the way that it is and like like poverty is everywhere and all of that. There's no easy fix. But essentially, back in the early 20th century, the church kind of like passed the responsibility over to the government to fix the, the problem of the poor. And uh, I, I guess that would mainly be like the Protestant movement. But the, the, the Catholic Church, for all of their problems, and believe me, I, I know what they are. They're getting tons of bad PR right now for good reason. But this is something that the Catholic Church has done phenomenally well over the years. Um, for example, um, they are the largest non-government provider of healthcare services in the world. Uh, the Catholic Church has around 18,000 clinics, 16,000 homes for the elderly and for the severely disabled. I've been to a few of them in the developing world. It's insane. They have 5,500 hospitals, including St. Charles. And like 65% of those hospitals are actually in the developing world. So um, this is like billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure that the Catholic Church has put in place so that people who are made in God's image have access to some version of healthcare. That's a good thing. So for all of their weaknesses and the problems, they've got that going for them. So um, the problem with giving to the poor with these sort of suspect motives in order to gain notoriety and status, it's a painful one. You think about what that actually feels like to be on the receiving end of someone's generosity, but it's actually for status and not just for the, their good. It's dehumanizing. It exploits the poor are people made in God's image who are completely equal in every single way, and it exploits them. It uses them for personal gain. So this kind of like shady generosity for public notoriety, it's like, it's like attempting to buy reputation. It's like improving a personal brand. This is the opposite of God's heart. Because giving to the poor is supposed to humanize them. It's supposed to like, see people who are ordinarily uh, passed over. It's supposed to help their needs, not like enhance my personal brand. And this kind of generosity, unfortunately, is common in the church today. So the whole of scripture points to this other like, burning reality that the heart of God is 
bent towards the poor and towards the oppressed, to the widow and to the orphan. There's literally hundreds of verses that I could give you. I'm just going to share with you two. Psalm 140, 140 verse 12. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Okay, this is similar to Jesus. Jesus mentions a reward three different times in the four verses that we, that we read. So it might not feel like this in our neighborhoods or in our town because we live in such an idyllic, pretty affluent place. But we are facing a massive humanitarian crisis in the 2020s, especially in the wake of COVID-19 and the pandemic and what effect that's had on the economy, not in places where we have the security of things like stimulus packages and we can print money and stuff like that, in, in civilizations and cultures and economies where they can't do that. This is, uh, COVID has been catastrophic. And that's not to mention the natural disaster in Haiti or what's going on in Afghanistan right now. I just wanted to share with you a couple of statistics to help open our eyes a little bit to what's going on in the world around us. Present day, these are as current stats as I can possibly find. Um, 785 million people lack access to clean drinking water. And 800 children under the age of five die every day from diarrhea that was caused by contaminated water, poor sanitation, and unsafe hygiene practices. Two billion people live without access to adequate sanitation. 2.4 billion people live in moderate or severe food insecurity. 152 million children under the age of five are stunted because of their food scarcity. There are 168 million child laborers worldwide, and one in four children live in a conflict or disaster zone. 30 people every minute are displaced from their hometown because of war. There are 153 million orphans worldwide that we know of, and there are 24.9 million people who are trafficked annually in the world. These are just like just about an hour or so worth of research looking at some of these credible organizations like UNICEF, The Guardian Group, Voice for the Children, World Hunger, International Labor Organization, Charity Water, Action Against Hunger, all of these things. This is, this is the most current snapshot of the, the need in the world around us. It's astounding. These numbers are so huge that we, we, we don't even have the ability to empathize. Like, like we don't have the, the ability to empathize that these are actual humans. Like the, these, this data represents actual humans. Like our, our, our heads can't comprehend that. These are people made in the image of God. But I know that if these were my kids, I would be freaking out about this. The kids that I love so dearly. And my kids, thank God, have never gone a single day, much less even like a half a day without water and food and education and healthcare and basic freedoms and economic stability and a safe place to lay their head at night. And never have they ever experienced this kind of scarcity or this kind of need. And I know that things feel weird right now in our culture with COVID, like we're back in our masks this week and no one wanted to wear a mask and all of that. But doesn't this put things into perspective a little bit about the need that's ongoing in the world around us? I was reading unemployment stats in North Africa. That's a whole nother scary thing. We're like topping 30%. That's more than one in four people who are unable to work because the economy has been stunted due to COVID. This is like insanity right now. 
So although we may not be able to wrap our heads around all of this, God sees these people. And he loves these people the same way that he loves my kids. And I owe Jesus my life. Like my whole life is his. That's what I sing. That's what I pray. That's what I read. That's what I talk about here on Sundays. All of my life belongs to Jesus. He's everything to me. So I cannot stand by while his people around the world are suffering. It just doesn't work. To say, you're king, you're lord, I owe you everything. But turn a blind eye to his people who are broken around the world and who are hurting. It just doesn't compute. It doesn't work. So if this were my actual perspective, then wouldn't my hope and wouldn't my goal and wouldn't my aim be to do the most amount of good for the most amount of people while I still have breath in my lungs. Well, especially if I live in the American West, one of the most affluent societies to have ever existed. Of course, that's what I'm going to be about. So Jesus seems to think this is the right attitude to have as well. He says this in verse three. He says, but when you give to the needy, not if, but when, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret your will reward you. Now, remember, this is specifically referring to almsgiving, right? So tithes, offerings, other things might be different. Jesus is just specifically talking about when you give to the poor, don't make a big announcement. Don't make it about you. Don't, don't try and buy reputation. Like, that's not what this is for. Just don't even notice what you're doing or give yourself a pat on the back for it. So in contrast to the hypocrisy of giving to the poor as a way of buying a good reputation with other religious people, ideally what Jesus is saying is that your life will be filled with quiet acts of generosity. Quiet acts of generosity. So true righteousness, it doesn't seek attention. It doesn't seek status. True righteousness instead, it wants what God wants in the world which is justice and compassion for the poor and the needy. This is too much, of a, too much of an important problem for me to get accolades and credit for the good things that I'm doing. It has to be about resolving what is so tragically broken in our society. So the inner life of the disciple is fine with secrecy because secrecy ensures the integrity of your motive. Secrecy, secrecy in, in this area ensures the integrity of your motive. And the joy of giving in secret is kind of something that's unexpected. And this is what I've witnessed both in other people and I've also witnessed myself. Is that there is this incredible thing that happens when you give in secret. Where you just have this like deep, visceral, from the soul level agreement with God's heart. Like yes, this is good. And no one's going to know about it. No one's going to notice it. No one's, I'm not, my, my reputation, my standing, my status isn't going to be improved by this act of generosity. Only God and I know about it, but it's good. And this is what the world needs. So it's a deep agreement with the heart of God. Quiet generosity ensures the integrity of your motive. One uh, kind of fun thing about being a pastor is that I get to experience this probably more than most people. 
because I'm often like brokering people's quiet generosity. There's some like really radically generous people in this church who understand this concept, who are doing this kind of thing often. In fact, there's one family in the church who may or may not be sitting to your right or left. I'm not gonna tell you. Um, but they, they practice generosity this way all the time where they hear about a need in the community. They give to other things as well, but they hear about a need in our church, like somebody who's lost a job or someone who's having car trouble, can't make rent, something's gone on in their life. And they want to, quietly, secretly give to that person. And so what they do is they withdraw cash and they come and they, they like literally like put a label, like print out a label on an envelope so that no one can like dis- decipher the handwriting or whatever. And then they give it to me and then I go and give it to the person who um, is receiving it. And it's like this really fun, like fun thing that I get to do as a pastor. They do it kind of often. So every time I get a call from this guy, I'm like, yes, I get to do this again. And, uh, and it's really, 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 really cool. Um, and because I get to see both sides of the exchange, it's kind of interesting. Because it's been proven true time and time and time and time and time and time again that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that this kind of work we must do to help the weak, remembering the words of Jesus himself, said, it is more blessed give than to receive. And all of the quiet generosity that I've personally witnessed, that has been like absolutely true. The one who's quietly giving without anybody knowing is actually being rewarded by the Father. And I love that. There's this deep agreement with, with the Lord. It's, it's beautiful. I don't, I don't know all of the reasons why, but I think there's just something about being able to make a contribution, being able to make a difference in somebody else's life without getting credit for it. There's some kind of reward both in this life and in the one to come. And what is done in secret, the Father will reward. The scripture makes it really clear here and in the proverb that we read that it's actually okay to be motivated by reward. It's not like, like a violation of your, your righteousness to, to be motivated by reward, but we do need to guard ourselves, excuse me, guard ourselves from hypocrisy. He's saying, yeah, God, the Father who sees what you do in secret, he's going to reward you. But guard yourself against hypocrisy, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Don't do it to gain status or whatever. So that's a question for your reflection today. Are you doing the right things for the wrong reasons? What are uh, what, what is your motive? What is your hypocrisy? That's, an, that's the second thing. It's to notice your motives. And again, we're all in process. And of course we want people to think high of us. Of course we like got ready in the mirror today and I'm trying to sound great in front of you. Like, of course all of that is in play. But ultimately when it comes to your righteousness, what are your motives? Are you needing to be noticed and receive accolades or gain posture in the community? Or are you just doing it to please the Lord? And again, accept where you're at today. We're all in a process. We're all on a journey. And over time, through maturity, maybe one day you'll be the kind of person who slides keys across the table at somebody and says, hey, don't tell anybody that that car is yours. Maybe not, but you may get that opportunity. Also, um, when when you practice generosity, practice your generosity quietly. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Another really quick story. Uh, at the end of this last year, um, there was a m- man who lives in a completely different state. 
I've never met him uh, to this day. But his son has been a part of Riverbend for a while, and he was home for Christmas, and they just noticed this big change in him, and he said that he'd been like following after Jesus, and it made this deep impact on him and all of that. And so this guy phones me up, puts the check in the mail, says, hey, I got something coming for you. Um, I don't need anything, but just like, just like, like do as much good with this as you possibly can. I'm like, yeah, cool, awesome, man, that's great. I had no idea what to expect. I open it up, it's a check for $30,000. And he's just saying, like, like, whatever you can do with this, like, whatever good you can do with this, do it. Again, another example of just what it means to quietly give. And there's many more people like that in this room, and it's not about the amounts It's actually just about giving sacrificially. It's about doing it quietly. It's also about doing it sacrificially. So practice quiet generosity. Practice generosity that's between you and the Father. Make it about Him. Make it about glorifying the Lord. Make it about not repaying others, but actually like realizing that He's been so gracious with you that we get to respond by being generous back to those who are in need. Uh, Practice generosity that's sacrificial. This is super, super important. Remember, Jesus, when he hung on the cross, it cost him a great deal. It cost cost him his life. The sacrifice that Jesus made was astounding. And what he says is that we are meant to follow him in the same exact way. So sometimes... God may be calling you to be generous in a way that is actually sacrificing something that you want. Actually, what's cool is that as I'm looking around the room, I know so many stories of people who've done exactly that, who've quietly given, sacrificially. It cost them. It affected their bottom line, but it was for the good of another, and it's just so beautiful. And then, um, and then finally, practice the generosity of presence. One of the things that I love about the old way of taking care of the needy versus our new way, which is like the welfare state or whatever, is that the old way, it's like human to human. It's like I see a person in need and I get to get with that person. I get to share with them and I get to see them receive the gift. And part of giving is actually your presence. Is partly it's about, it's about you and the countenance of Jesus and the love of Jesus that's in you that you get to share with other people. So as you consider what God might be asking you to do this week, I just want you to think about those couple of things. And if I could just give you one minor suggestion, one suggestion, if you don't know where to start, let me just let you know about a really cool organization called Justice and Compassion. Allie Kelly, who's actually a part of the community here at Riverbend, she's going to be at the next gathering. I talked to her a couple days ago. Um, she runs this great organization called Justice and Compassion. She's Brazilian. She grew up in Brazil. And there's this organization that she leads there where they help educate and house kids who are vulnerable to being sold into the sex trade. And she's building homes over there. Brooke went there for a couple of weeks last year to kind of check things out. They're one of our partners. We support them here at Riverbend. And if you're looking for a way that you could give to to help the needy, this is one really great organization that you can start. You can go to their website. You can give now, all that stuff. And that's one way you can help the needy. Are you guys with me? All right. Let's uh, let's stand, and we're going to respond through singing. 
and also through coming to the table of communion and all that good stuff. But first and foremost, I just want to pray over you. And I also just want to remind you that God is radically generous towards you and his love for you is real. So my hope is that you don't hear this message cut from the cloth of like, oh my gosh, you're not doing good enough. You need to do more. You need to give more and all of that. My hope is that you can hear this message that God has richly loved you. He's given to you. And so now we get to respond in kind. So Father, I just want to say thank you for your deep love for us. Thank you for my sisters and thank you for my brothers here in this room. Relatively speaking, we are affluent, we are blessed, and we just thank you for the, the, the privilege and the relative comfort that we experience in our culture right now. But we're sort of confronted by the deep need in the world around us. We're confronted by the cries of the poor and the hungry and the thirsty and the displaced and the sex trafficked and all of that. We're confronted by the cries of the hurting. We just ask God, would you break our hearts for what is breaking your heart? And I pray that we would, would give, not out of a place of receiving anything from it or in exchange for it, pray that you would help us sort out our hypocrisy. But then God, I also just pray that you would challenge us and, and show us how to give quietly and to, to do it in secret so that we can be truly rewarded by you. And I know when I think about the, like, the few hundred bucks that I can like send off to justice and compassion, it just feels like a tiny little small drop in the bucket based on what we, we know from what we just read. But God, I pray that you would stir up in us that like, that, that like heart to give generously anyways. And we pray that you would multiply the little stuff that we give and that you would just like turn it into way, 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 way more in your name, Jesus. So you guys, one of the things that we wanna do this morning is just open the tables of communion. So as soon as I say amen, I just wanna welcome you to come forward or go to the table at the back, grab the bread and the cup, and then come back to your seat. We'll take it together as one church after that. And this is, is again, remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's deeply connected with this conversation of quiet generosity. And the other thing is that we, I'm really excited about this. Um, for the first time in a long time, we're opening up the prayer wall, which is at the back of the room. In fact, you can look back there now and you can see we've got some prayer hands illuminated. That is for you um, to just go back. My friends, Moses, Lorinda, Jenny on our staff team are back there. And if you're experiencing anything that you just need deliverance from, maybe something was shared today that kind of struck a chord with you, or maybe you just walked in here with great anxiety or some burden that you're not meant to carry. Well, we would like to just carry you to the, the feet of Jesus' throne, and we would love the chance to pray for you. So during the next couple of songs as we're getting, um, like the bread in the cup, as we're singing praise to him, please just feel free to head back there, and they would love to just pray over you and see God's deliverance in your life. Jesus, you are king, you are Lord, we love you, and we just pray that you would bless the rest of our time as we respond to your goodness. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Tables are open, and the prayer wall is also open.